Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Jenny and I have been married for 20 years, going on 21 years. I find that funny for a couple reasons. Number one, that any woman would put up with me for 20 years, but the other side of that is I still don't feel like I'm old enough to have been married 20 years. Uh, I know that seems funny, and uh, then there are some of you that really get that because you've been married a lot longer than 20 years, and you don't feel old enough to be married as long as you've been married. So I guess that's just a, another reminder of our mortality and how fast time seems to fly. But I'll tell you, even though it was 20 years ago that Jenny and I got married, I remember distinctly uh, life before being married to Jenny, those, and then those first few years of trying to figure out life with Jenny as a married couple. Uh, and there's, some, there's always interesting things to reflect on as I think back during that time. I know that when Jenny and I got married, one of the things that was very apparent to me is that we saw things very, very differently. Uh, we both grew up in different families, right? We grew up uh, in different contexts, different situations, we, in different ways by our different parents. Uh, and so we had different perspectives on life, on issues, on decisions that we would have to make as a married couple. And so at first, this caused some tension, as you can imagine. In fact, in your marriages, you might reflect back on some tension at the beginning of your marriages over such things. Some decisions forced us to truly listen to each other, and we often had to begin making compromises, something that perhaps we weren't as familiar with before. Eventually, though, both of us began to come into alignment in many areas of our life where at the beginning, perhaps, there was tension. There are some areas where even after 20 years of marriage, I really haven't conformed. But now as I face those situations, as I face those decisions, I know full well how Jenny would approach that situation, how Jenny would see the situation, what she would believe would be right in any given situation. And other areas, I have been transformed. In 20 years of intentional marriage between my wife and I, my way that was 20 years ago is no longer my way, and I see things the way Jenny would see things. I see things now as she would see them, and this has, become, this has come as the result of 20 years, again, of intentional relationship. You know, the same work, same is true with our life with Jesus, right? When it comes to our life with Jesus, the same situation occurs so long as we're intentional about nurturing that relationship uh, and not just taking it for granted. There are areas where, like me and Jenny, you have not yet conformed. Jesus' way is not necessarily your way. At least it's not your initial impulse. Your impulse is to do things uh, a certain way because that's the way you see them and that's the way you always have. You haven't yet conformed. But the longer you walk with Jesus, the more in these situations you do recognize that even though your impulse is to do this, you know what Jesus would have you do. And so you have the opportunity to be obedient to him, to do the thing that he would have you to do, even if your first impulse was not to do that. In other areas, that tension that might have existed in the past no longer exists. 
You don't want to go another way anymore. Instead, now your impulse is to go in the same direction as the Lord. Because the longer you have walked in intentional and mutual relationship with him, his ways have become your ways. And as you face these situations, it's no longer two diverging paths and you have to choose my way or God's way, but your way has become God's way, or God's way has become your way, rather. And the more and more and the longer and longer you walk with Jesus in intentional relationship, nurturing your life with Jesus, you'll see this as the fruit, or one of the fruit, of that relationship. For those of you who need a good reminder, because this is a good lengthy definition, or perhaps you're just joining us, uh, here's what I mean by life with Jesus. And this has been the series that we have been focusing on this last several weeks. By life with Jesus, I mean this. That mutual and intentional relationship between us and Christ through which we continually grow in our understanding and experience of his love, in our desire to be obedient to him and to be transformed by him, and in our willingness to be on mission with him. And so over the last few weeks, we've looked at these first two aspects uh, of undergrowing in our understanding and our experience of his love, and also in our desire to be obedient to him and that he would transform us. And so today we're going to focus on the last aspect, that we are continually growing in our willingness to be on mission with him. And this is an important message and one that if you've been with us for any length of time, now I've been here as your pastor for seven years, and I have lost count of the innumerable sermons and teachings that I have had on evangelism, on missions, on the Great Commission, on our need to go out. And so this is, this is not a new thing for us to talk about. So why talk about it again? Well, first of all, of course, as it relates to our life with Jesus, I think we're going to understand it better. But here's the facts as they relate to our congregation. And these aren't you. This is all of us, myself included. Here's the reality. We're a church that on a normal and average Sunday averages about 30 people in a town of 20,000 people. We gather together each week. And, and if I, we see 30, 32, 33 people on the attendance rolls for a Sunday morning, we feel like we've hit our normal number in a town of over 20,000 people. We're a church that, outside of the children's and youth ministry, hasn't celebrated anyone coming to faith, at least that I know of, in the last several years. It's a sad reality, it's a hard reality, but it's a true reality. We are a church that has very limited impact on our community. Again, that's a hard fact, right? I have not heard from anybody in this community who thinks badly about our church. Let me go ahead and say that. In fact, often what I get when I talk to somebody about our church, oh, you're the pastor of the Alliance Church. I used to go to the Alliance Church. Or they remember something, their parents went here, or something that they went to as a kid, or something that happened years ago. And so in our 65-year legacy here, there's been many times that we have impacted this community. But when we measure our impact in this community right now, I dare say I don't think we have much impact at all. And all of this, again, despite the innumerable teachings and sermons and, and times that we've looked at passages together and we've 
prayed for people who don't know Jesus, and I, and, and, I, and, I, and I know, having conversations with many of you, that you do have a heart for those that you love who don't yet know Jesus. And yet this is our situation, this is our reality. But I want you to know something. I don't bring these facts up today to make you feel bad. This isn't to scold you, to rebuke you, to make you feel bad, to bring guilt or shame or anything upon any of you. And I promise you, this is not you apart from me. This is all of us. We own these facts, right? I don't say any of that because I'm trying to guilt you. And I don't say any of that because I'm even trying to motivate you to do something you haven't been doing. That's not why we even have this sermon today. I don't want you to go out and feel like I have to go do this today so I could check that box, have done what I'm supposed to do, because that's the wrong motivation. I say all of this for two reasons. Here's why I want to bring it to our attention. First, because we do need to understand where we're at, right? And we do need to recognize that there's a problem. There's something that we should want to change as a congregation. And if we just ignore that fact or don't talk about the hard truths, then nothing's ever going to change. And so we do need to own it. We need to understand it together as a church family. Second, because I, as your pastor, I believe have misdiagnosed the problem in the past. And so my approach to leading this congregation in this area hasn't produced much fruit, you know, hasn't had much in terms of results. And so that begs the question, what is the problem? Why, why are we not sharing the gospel? Why are people not coming to faith in Jesus? And, and we're filling this place with new believers that have to be discipled, and all of us are stepping in, rallying behind that. Why is that not the culture of our church? Why is that not our reality? And then what is the solution to this problem? And I want to talk to you about this together today. The problem, I believe, I'll give, I'll give you the end at the beginning. I'll give, you the, I'll give you the problem right now. I truly believe that the problem is the same that we've been talking over the past several weeks as we looked at other aspects of the Christian life. As a church community, we have been lacking in our life with Jesus, our intimacy with Christ, our relationship with God. We misunderstood it, perhaps, or we understood it in part, or we didn't act out what we knew to be true. In whatever way it is for each and every one of us and us as a community, we have in some way lacked in our life with Jesus. We have seen that by neglecting our life with Jesus, we have significantly missed out, if not on the understanding of, certainly the experience of God's love. In fact, among us, there are also many instances of misunderstandings of God's love or shallow understandings of God's love. And I know this is true because of feedback I've gotten over the last couple of weeks as we've gone through this sermon series, especially that message on God's love. We also knew little of what it means to, to, to love God with our lives, with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, and all of our mind. Or if we did know what it meant, we certainly haven't been executing it as well as we should. And because we've been called to a mutual and intentional relationship with the Lord Almighty, we've largely lived as though we were only to receive, perhaps, from him. Or we've lived passively in this relationship instead of recognizing that this is a mutual and intentional relationship that we have a role to play too, and we need to step into that individually and corporately as a church family. We've also seen that by neglecting our life with Jesus, the Christian life does often seem like a whole bunch of rules. 
like those things you must do and those things you must not do. Maybe like a chore, right? And why is that? It's not supposed to be like that. Old Testament and New Testament, there are rules, there are commandments, there are laws, but that's not the essence of Christianity. That's not what the Christian life is all about. But when we don't nurture that life with Jesus, those do's and don'ts, those things that God instructs us to do, they become a burden for us that they're never intended to be. Remember, it was Jesus that said, uh, my yoke is light, right? And so we need to understand this together. Our constant failing in these areas has led to overwhelming failure and shame, and it need not be that way. If we'd only realize that by leaning into our life with Jesus, we would not only grow in our desire to please the Lord, but we'd also be transformed by him and have even more capacity to live out the way he called us to live. It wouldn't seem like a burden. It wouldn't seem like a chore. It would seem like a joy, and it would be easy. And so, friends, for all of us, myself included, we need to focus back in on the foundational things, the most important things, the first things. Put the first things first, our life with Jesus. I gave you an example earlier of my marriage to Jenny. Uh, boy, were we different. Um, you know, they say opposites attract. In fact, back in my teenage years, Paula Abdul sang a song to that effect. Um, but the truth is, long-term relationships that stay opposites don't turn out real well, do they? If you know, we, don't, we don't get into a marriage hoping to change the person, but the longer you walk an intentional relationship, the more compromises the may, you make, the more you communicate, the more you learn about the person you're in a relationship with, the more you do tend to conform one to the other. And there will always be your quirks and your distinctions. But if you stay polar opposites throughout your entire long-term relationship, you're going to have some real problems. And as we nurture our life with Jesus, as we lean in in that relationship, we will find that he is conforming us more and more to his image. The things that are important to him, important to God, become important to us. The way he sees the world becomes more and more the way we see the world the longer we walk with him. And friends, here's something that I hope you already know about Jesus. And if you don't, you're not leaving here today without knowing it. Jesus is all about mission. Jesus is all about reconciling lost people to himself. And the longer we intentionally lean into our life with Jesus, the more that will be part of our heartbeat as well. So what is our problem? Our problem is that we've not been investing in, nurturing in, or consistently fostering our life with Jesus. And as a result, the things that are important to him are not necessarily what's important to us. And foundational imperative things like evangelism, like missions, seem like a chore often, or a burden, a discomfort, perhaps a mountain too high to climb, a responsibility we really don't want or we think will be best entrusted to other people. And that really has to change. But to say that has to change, I don't mean go after the symptom and not address the underlying issue. After all, one of our symptoms in this church, myself included, again, is a lack of evangelism or not sharing the gospel as often as we should. 
That's a symptom. And so we don't, while we want the symptom to change, we want the symptom to go away. Raise your hand if you love headaches. I hate them. And I'll even take a sore throat over a headache. When I get sick, that's the thing I look forward to the least is the headache because it just paralyzes me from everything else. But at the end of the day, the headache is nothing more than a symptom of the underlying cold that's going on. Now, I do still pop Advil to get rid of that headache. That's how little I like that headache. But let's be honest, even if I'm able to kill the headache for a moment, for four hours till the next dose, I haven't gotten rid of the sickness that's still inside. And so while I do want you to go out and share the gospel every opportunity you get, we can't go after the, the symptom without addressing the root problem. And the problem, again, is a lack of intimacy with Christ, relationship with God, life with Jesus. The fruit of the Christian life, all those things that we're supposed to produce, that we're supposed to look like, that we're supposed to do, the fruit of the Christian life comes from the overflow of a life with Jesus. It only works that way. That's the way he has established it. That's the way he has talked about it in the text of Scripture. We can't do it any other way. It has to be through him. In fact, we saw this in John 15, 5. It says, Jesus is talking to his disciples, his apostles. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you could do nothing. And so the branch can't just say, huh, I'm not producing fruit. I got to get on that. You know, we're, we're an agricultural town. I don't need to tell you this. What happens to a branch that's disconnected from the vine? It dies. It withers and dies. It doesn't produce fruit. And so a branch can't say, I'm just going to go produce something. What's its job? To remain connected to the vine. And the vine is the one that gives us the ability to produce. It works in and through us as the branches. Our job is to abide in the vine, to nurture intentionally that relationship with God, that life with Jesus. So how do I know that our life with Jesus will produce an increase in evangelism? How do I know it'll lead to a sharing of the gospel more often, leading people to faith in Christ? How do I know that if we address this problem, that will be the result, that those things will go up? Because we could read this and know who it is that we serve. We can know our God. And here's the first thing I want to mention. Our God is a God on mission. If you don't know that fact, I encourage you wholeheartedly to pour yourself into this. Because from the first pages to the last pages, we read about a God who is on mission. You know, he doesn't tell you anything in here about what life was like before he created the world, does he? In fact, the very first chapter, the very first verses talk about his creation. But God didn't come into being. He had all of eternity before creation in perfect union, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why don't we get an inclination into what life was like for God back then? Why does he share any of that? Because that's not what's important. But what happens from the moment the world is created and humans fall into sin till the very end of the story, this is a story of God's work on mission in this world to redeem lost people. We serve a God who is on mission.
And here's the truth about God. God has always been on mission since, the, since there was a problem that, to be on mission for, since the fall. And you could even argue, having perfect foreknowledge of everything that was going to take place, God has been on mission even before that moment. Because he knew what he would do in history to fix the problem even before we caused the problem. God has always been on mission. God is currently on mission. And God will always be on mission until Jesus returns and there's no more mission left. This is the testimony, again, of all of Scripture. Long before the church, long before Israel, all the way back to the Garden of Eden when humanity first fell into sin, we got the very first promise that God would fix the problem. That he would bring about one, the seed of a woman, who we know to be Jesus, the Redeemer, who would undo the results of what had just taken place in humanity's rebellion in the Garden of Eden. That's in Genesis 3.15. We know that God told a man named Abram that he and his offspring would be a source of blessing to all the nations. We see this in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, that all families on earth, all nations on earth, will be blessed through him. Israel, his descendants, Abram's descendants, they were given the first great commission, they were to be a light to the Gentiles and to make God known to the nations. If you thought that the Great Commission was a Christian thing, came about when Jesus came, no, it has always been the call of God's people from a God who is on mission. Consider this psalm. We looked at this in Sunday school this morning. I say that each week at some point to encourage you to come out to Sunday school if you're not already being there because we have more time to dig into passages such as this. But consider Psalm 96, which we're going to turn to in a moment. You can turn there now if you'd like. Psalm 96 is an Old Testament psalm. It's written probably like a thousand years before Jesus ever came. It's written in the context of Israel. And yet, what do we see? What are we going to see? We are going to see the mission to the whole world. God's call to the whole world. God's commitment to redeem the whole world, not just Israel. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Psalm 96. If you don't have your Bibles with you, it will also be up on the screen. I love the sound of the flipping of pages of the Bible. Some of you are just flipping pages to make me happy. You're not even turning there. So here's what Psalm 96 says, starting in the first verse. It says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are, his, are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. 
He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. There's a common misunderstanding that God was all about the Jewish people until Jesus came and then he was about the whole world. Or that he had to just nurture that covenant with Israel. And then when Jesus came, now Israel was to expand beyond its borders and reach out with the gospel to all nations. When the fact of the matter is, God was always at mission. And his people, including the Israelites who he covenanted with, their job, their mission was to make God known, not just to Israel, but beyond to all the nations. Because here's the thing. All these other foreign people groups, all these other nations, these neighbors of Israel throughout their history believed in lots of gods. And these gods were territorial. This is the God of the Philistines. This is the God of the Amorites. These are the gods of... And that's Israel's God. But that's not the way the world is. And Israel knew it. All those other gods, they're nothing more than idols. They're nothing more than stupid little statues fashioned out of wood, fashioned out of stone, fashioned out of clay. They're not real. God, the Lord of Israel, is God of the whole world. He created everything, all things, all peoples, all things, and everything in creation is subject to him alone. And he hasn't chosen as a favorite one people group and thrown the rest away. But he has chosen one people group that by through them he might reach out to all because he is the God of all and he loves all and he desires to redeem all. God has always been on mission throughout history. He's been working out his plan of salvation, working among individuals and nations to bring about salvation at just the right time in Jesus the Messiah. And at just the right time, Jesus came, dying as an atoning sacrifice that would cover all sins and all rebellion of all the people who would respond to it. For all who claim that atonement through belief and the surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus. For all who would be reconciled to God through Jesus, his Son. So why didn't God just pull the curtain on history after Jesus died and rose again? Is that a fair question? I'll repeat it. Okay, God's been promising salvation. God brought it in Jesus. He died as an atoning sacrifice. He rose again from the dead for justification. Why didn't God just say, and that's it, and pull the curtain on history right there? Why didn't he just save those who believed in Jesus during his earthly ministry and be done with it? Because God loves the whole world. Because God is a God on mission. Because God wants as many people as possible to believe in him and be saved. So what did he do? What did he do? He commissioned those who were reconciled to God and Jesus. He gave instruction to those whose life with Jesus was the most important thing, that they would be his ambassadors to the world, bringing this good news of God's love and the salvation he offers so that as many people as possible could be saved. And we read about this, that this didn't just apply to the first Christians, but that for all of us, this is what our God, who's on mission, who we're in relationship with, 
calls us to as well. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, flip to Romans chapter 10, verse 12. It'll be up on the screen too. I'm going to move a little quicker, um, but it will be on the screen if you don't have time to turn there. Romans 10, verses 12 through 15. Paul's writing to the church at Rome. Here's what he says. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You know, Paul is, is first of all, giving glory to God for his mercy, right? Paul's a Jewish man, right? He, the Jews were in covenant relationship with God already. He had received the gospel. He, he was saved. And, but he didn't just rejoice in that. He rejoiced that not only Israel, not only him, but all peoples can call on the name of the Lord and receive salvation. The same salvation that Paul and all the Jewish believers had received. That is open now to everybody. But here's the problem. People could call on the name of the Lord and be saved, but how can they call on him if they don't know who he is? And how can they know who he is if nobody tells them about him? And how can anybody t tell them about him if nobody goes? And so here in Paul's words in Romans, we see that, yes, because of God's mercy, this is possible, but it is through God's people committed to their life with Jesus in a relationship with him who take what's important to him seriously and it becomes what's important to them. They're the ones who serve as ambassadors going and telling people so that they too might hear and respond to the good news and come to relationship with that same God who we love. We see also in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20, again, it'll be up on the screen, Paul's writing now to a different church, the church at Corinth. Here's what he says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So what do we see here? That part and parcel of our new life in Christ, okay, is our call to be ambassadors. So we tend to think of it sometimes too simplistically, I'm a sinner. I heard the gospel. I respond. I give my life to Jesus. He forgives me. Thank God. End of the story. But what's Paul saying here? That part and parcel with that experience is also our commissioning as ambassadors. And so, yes, we recognize our desperate need for, for the Lord's forgiveness. And he makes us a new creation. Our sins are no longer held against us. We are a new creation in Christ. We've received our salvation and have been commissioned as his ambassadors that other people too might be reconciled to God and Jesus Christ. He is literally making his appeal to the nations through you and me as we proclaim the gospel. 
This is the way he has established it. This is our purpose for continuing to dwell on this earth instead of just zipping us up to heaven when we pray to the Lord and give our life to him and receive his salvation. Our story's not done because now we have the second part to serve as his ambassadors. What a high calling. I mean, man, I don't trust me enough to give me that job and God trusted me enough to give me that job. That's pretty humbling. That's the same for all of us. God has always been on mission. God is currently on mission. And he calls his church, his people, to be a part of that mission. But here's the truth. The mission's not going to last forever. The mission's going to end when Jesus returns. And at that point, there'll be no more chances. There'll be no more redemption. There will be no more turning to Jesus. The destinies of each and every person on this earth will be final for all times. And that's why this is so important, right? This is why it's important, not just to us. This is why it's important to God. It is important to Jesus that we understand and take seriously the call he has on our life because other people's eternal destinies are dependent on hearing and responding to the gospel. It's important to God and therefore it is important to us. The more we commit ourselves to our life with Jesus, the more important it will be to us. This is what's going to happen if you commit yourself even more to your life with Jesus. You're going to grow in your compassion for the lost. You don't have to think about it. It'll just happen. The more you spend time with Jesus, the more your heart breaks for the lost. That's just the way it works. Your heart will break for those who live and those who die apart from Jesus. You will grow in your desire to tell them about the love of your God and tell them what he's done. You will create opportunities to share the gospel, and you're going to be good at it. Wait a second, what? How do I know that you're going to be good at it? You know, I don't think that many of us, if any of us, would say that we're good at sharing the gospel. I think the evidence is before us, let's be honest, right? Would we say that? But do you know that the more we dig in in our life with Jesus, the better we will be at sharing the gospel? I know that because... You're not, in that moment, you're not trying to memorize facts to be able to articulate to somebody else. Instead, you're telling them from your own experience who God is and what God has done. You'll not merely have responded to the gospel, you'll have been transformed deeply by the gospel the longer you walk with Jesus, and you will literally be living out the gospel. The gospel will be on your lips, and so you will be good at it. God will make you good at it. So what do we do in closing? How do we get there? If we know what the problem is, that we have a lack in our life with Jesus, how do we change that? How do we do something about this? Well, first of all, let me just put it this way. If you have responded to the gospel, if you are truly a believer, if you believe that Jesus' death and resurrection secured your right standing before God, on the basis of what he's done, not on the basis of what you've done. If you've surrendered to him as your Lord, a lifetime commitment, Jesus is my Lord, not just a whim when the pastor offered an altar call. If Jesus is your Lord and you believe the gospel, then you are saved. Uh, you are, and, and that's it. You are saved and you have been entered into that relationship, right? Romans 10, 9 says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Period. You don't have to rethink it. You don't have to second guess it. It's true. But you're not only saved, but you are in this relationship with God. You, you have been given the capacity to have a life with Jesus the way he has called you to do it. 
Now, if this is not you, or you're not sure, then please do not leave here today. Come talk to me immediately after the worship service. But again, if this is you, then you have entered into a relationship with God through Jesus. Um, And so we have a call now to lead in uh, to that relationship. Like any relationship, you need to do your part. And again, this is a mutual relationship. So here's the question. Are you fulfilling your role in this mutual relationship? Are you letting God do all the work? Are you just sitting back and receiving? Or are you contributing your end to this relationship? Again, this is an intentional relationship. Are you back in reception mode? Or are you being intentional about leading in and nurturing this relationship God has called you to? And so here's some suggestions to get you going. This is the Sunday school answer. Our Awana teachers say this, I'm sure, to our students all the time. Um, But it is still the best advice, right? Read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. Please, ladies and gentlemen, read your Bibles. And don't do this primarily to learn more about God, although you will learn more about God as you read your Bible. Do this to encounter God as you read his word. These aren't fables. These aren't myths. These aren't stories. This is history. This is, these aren't characters. These are real people. And even God himself is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are revealed in the text of Scripture. And so read this and let God be magnified in your mind and your heart as you read. Ask him to reveal things about himself to you. Turn what you learn about God through your reading of the Bible into praise. In fact, I'm okay with you reading, reading, be blown away by God, stopping and praying and giving him glory for what you've just learned about him as you've read. We're called to do this. Pray. I urge you to pray at least 10 times a day without asking God for anything. I'll say that again because I would, if I had to venture a guess, if I was a betting man, I would say that probably most of us don't pray 10 times a day anyway. I hope that's, I hope I'm wrong. But I'm going to encourage you, pray at least 10 times a day, and in those 10 prayers, don't ask God for a single thing. Just give him praise for who he is. Give him praise for what he has done in history, in your life, in the life of people you know. Find psalms from the Bible that praise God or echo your heart, and read them to him in prayer. Meditate on God's word. Read a passage and then just sit with it before the Lord. Reflect on it. Ask the Holy Spirit to transform your heart by what you just read in the scriptures. I would urge you, friends, to wake up in the morning and spend time with God before you do anything else. I'll take what I could get from you. If you can only do it for five minutes, do it for five minutes. If you could give God a half hour, praise God, give God a half hour. But every day, start your day with the Lord. Ask him to guide your day. Ask him to show you things. Ask him to give you strength to live for him in the midst of the situations you'll face. Ask him to keep your eyes open to people and situations that you should be praying for as you go through your day. Start your day this way. As you go through your day, look for ways to give God honor. Talk to other Christians that you bump into throughout the day about the goodness of God. Tell non-Christians about what God has done for you. Sing songs to him in the car. Pray to him in your heart as you go through your day. 
You know, we face hard times, stressful times, frustrating times throughout our day as well. Don't leave God behind when these situations happen. Instead, release your frustrations, your conflicts, your trauma to him in real time. As they happen over the course of the day, give it to him in prayer. Give thanks to him as good things happen. In fact, before, when a good thing happens, before telling anybody else, stop and give thanks to God. This will allow your heart and mind to recognize where that good thing came from. Thank God before telling anyone else. Recognize his good things even in the little things that you take for granted each and every day. Friends, this is the short list. But if we are not doing some of these things, this might have something to do with the lack in all of our lives in terms of our life with Jesus. Is Jesus just that person you give an hour a day to on Sunday mornings? Or are we going to lean in and cultivate this relationship that he has called us to, through which he'll be glorified and we'll be blessed. The Christian life is about our life with Jesus. All those other things we associate with it flow from that.